the good old USA. Message where you come from, boy, how long you gonna stay? I said, I'm from the Six Nations, then reserved, don't know when I'm coming back. He said, I'll have to see your Indian cop. I said, why don't you tell me, Jack? Where's your white man's car? You tell me that you ain't black. Where's your white man's car? Sister, please get off my back. I don't have no bow and arrow That don't mean I want to die I went uptown to the drugstore Just to buy a pair of shades The man behind the counter said that I'll get 1598 I said I don't have to pay no tax on that Oh, not one of you again I'll have to see your Indian car I said, why don't you tell me, friend Where's your white man's car? You tell me that you ain't black Where's your white man's car? Sister, please get off my back I don't have no boy and arrow Say hello, I'm John Kane, and I welcome you to Let's Talk Native on this Tuesday, June 4th. While this program may not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do encourage, in some cases, start conversations. We don't do prayers or buffalo speeches. We take a tough look at history, oppression, and survival. We talk about culture, the arts, politics, and identity. And we may step on a few toes along the way. But our real goal here is to bring people together by breaking down what separates us. We will take on the false narratives and provide critical thinking to all that is heaped upon us. And we will do it all right here from the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation live. So let's talk native. But first let me remind you that our our, uh, audio streams on our website, which is www.letstalknative.com. We stream the video of our show live on Facebook Live. We take the audio and we put it up on SoundCloud and uh, offer it up as podcast after the broadcast. And we take the video and we put it up on our YouTube channel, which is Let's Talk Native TV. I am the host of Let's Talk Native, and I'm assisted here in studio by Jake Proud, who is managing our video and our sound. Uh, we opened up with White Man Car because I, we're celebrating, kind of. So last Sunday was the 95th anniversary of the Indian Citizenship Act. I guess that's the day that we got our own white man cards. <laughs> well, not quite. I'm going to break this down a little bit for you because they're, look, our people are really confused. You know, identity, you know, because of the the the, the policies of assimilation, you know, all of it. I mean, going right back to extermination and removal and, uh, assimilation, termination, even this so-called self-determination, because of all that, we, um, look, we we have a real identity problem. And these acts, like the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, uh, um, just contribute to it all. And But I want to back up even, even farther, even before 1924. Um, in 1868, that's when... Um, that's when they passed the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment uh, was supposed to make everybody citizens. Of course, it was really uh, geared towards coming out of the Civil War uh, so former slaves would be considered citizens. But interestingly enough, even though they passed that, it clearly did not apply to us. And, and of course, part of the reason it didn't apply to us is the language of the 14th Amendment talked about people being under the jurisdiction of the United States. Not just being born or naturalized, as they say, but but being under the jurisdiction, and we weren't. And, and proof of that is that in 1924 they would uh, pass this Indian Citizenship Act. But let me back up only a few years before that, because there was a conversation about this that that um, went on between the New York State Indian Commission 
and the Federal Indian Commission over this very subject. See, New York State had gotten to a place in 1920 where they um, they realized that they had been paying out um, treaty payments and and other things, uh, providing other services to to the quote unquote Indians of New York, and learned that they may not have had um, the legal right to do so. They may have been in a, misappropriating state funds because the federal government really had that responsibility. So the state put together a New York State Indian Commission headed up by a, a man by the name of Edward Everett. And his job was to produce a report. And so Edward Everett put together a, a whole commission, uh, you know, board, uh, including guys like A.C. Parker, you know, uh, somebody who many Senecas are, are aware of. Uh, but um, put together this, this commission and then traveled throughout all of, quote unquote, Indian country within within New York State. And. Uh, not only did they did he meet with native people but he also met with the federal government and part of the the Everett report which was produced in 1920 detailed the um uh, it basically had the transcript from the from the meeting between the New York State Indian Commission and the Federal Indian Commission and part of the the, the debate had to do with with the services who you know that the state was providing the federal government was supposed to provide including things like medical and uh, and whether native people, the whole jurisdictional thing, especially associated with uh, with education and that kind of stuff. And so the federal government flat out threw it out there. It says, well, why don't we just make them all citizens? Well, Ever- Edward Everett himself weighed in on this. And he said, well, well, that's absurd. You can't just make a people who predate our existence U.S. citizens. I mean, you couldn't do that to somebody who, from another country who came to the United States, just make them citizens against their will or without their uh, their request. That, that would be absurd. And especially since Everett knew that the reason the federal government was trying to do it was to solve a problem they had, which was a jurisdictional problem. So that was in 1920 that he submitted the report that included this transcript. A mere four years later, a New York State congressman by the name of Snyder would, um, would propose this, this citizenship act. And, and the, the claim that is tried to made, that, that they try to make historically, which isn't necessarily true, was that this was, being proposed because of the number of uh, of native people who were enlisting in the armed forces. Well, you know, they could have been made citizens if that's what they wanted to do. You know, they could have done that through the process of enlistment if they wanted to. So the idea that they that they wanted to pass this this citizenship back to 1924 wasn't about accommodating um look, I do know that native people enlist at a higher rate proportionally than than any other group of uh of people within you know, in in the northern hemisphere or in the uh, the, um, the western hemisphere, I get that, but it's still not that big a number. I mean, I, I realize when we talk about proportionality, it always sounds like a lot, but Native people didn't. We didn't win the war in in World War One or World War Two, but I. So this thing gets sometimes embellished, so to speak. The the, the fact of the matter is, Native people do enlist at a higher rate than 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 anybody else but it's still not a very big number because it's a it's it's a percentage of our population which is especially back then was was uh I, right now we're only about seven tenths of one percent so in in the in the 1900s or uh, 1920s we were we were probably less than two percent uh, uh, two tenths of one percent i mean it was a pretty small number uh, maybe we may not have made one tenth of one percent for all i know so Small number, anyway. But the, so this debate went went be, between the the uh, the state Indian Commission and the federal Indian Commission, and uh, and it was pretty much shot down by the uh, by New York State by the, those people from the New York State Commission. And of course, we didn't weigh in on this conversation. Native people weren't consulted on this thing. So, in again, ninety five years ago, last Sunday, the um, the House and the Senate passed an act and, and i'll read it here for you and this is the indian citizenship act it says be enacted by the state and house of representatives of the united states of america in congress assembled that all non-citizen indians born within the territorial limits of the u.s be and there uh and they are hereby declared to be citizens of the united states provided that granting of such citizenship shall not in any manner impair or otherwise affect the right of any Indian 
to tribal or other property. Hmm, that's an interesting uh, <laughs> provided uh, you know passage. Because uh, if you read this thing, the way it's passed, it says, yes, we're citizens, but doesn't mean we lose anything by, by becoming citizens, which is the exact reason they, they tried to grant us or, or grant us, Im, Im, impose citizenship upon us. They wanted to, to this was about like the, the final leg of, of conquest, even though, you know, they, they tried to say discovery and conquest was the same coming out of Johnson v. McIntosh and uh, Chief Justice John Marshall. And they tried to say over and over again that Native people were conquered. But I'll tell you, if they, if they pass a law like this, and declare that we're citizens, and we just go along with it, then we surrender. I mean, we just, we, we submit. We, we allow ourselves to be subjugated by the United States. Now, the other thing I want to mention here, in, in 1924, it was already being discussed because of coming out of World War I that the idea of denationalizing, stripping a people of, of national character and imposing another nation's character upon them, that's already being talked about as a war crime in 1924. So that's exactly what the United States uh, proposed in this in this Indian Citizenship Act. Now, they don't say, again, they, they have language in there say, well, we're not taking anything away. Funny thing is, then how are they, how are they imposing taxes on us? That's not our personal property? I mean, the, the fact that Seneca Nation officials who literally are voted in to sit on council and, and be executives how is that not tribal property that is being stripped away from them? they're being paid by for their service to the Seneca Nation wait a minute your Indian Citizenship Act said nothing in this citizen in the Citizenship Act um, shall shall affect our access to our own property well isn't income our own personal property of course it is of course there's still a question mark because just because the United States declared it to be so, just because the U.S. Senate, you know, House and Senate um, assembled declared this thing, doesn't mean that it's so. Especially when you consider that whole provided passage there. Just because they said it doesn't make it so. I mean, we have a choice in this matter. We can accept whether we want to be U.S. citizens or not. We don't have to abandon our national character our, our cultural character for you know uh, to pledge allegiance to the United States of America we don't have to do that and in fact many haven't many didn't ironically they do this coming out of the, the first world war and in the second world war all of a sudden native people started getting draft registrations and so our people said wait you can't draft us we're not U.S. citizens. Oh yeah, we passed that law back in 1924. Yeah, but that didn't apply to us. I mean, you can't you can't impose that upon us. And in fact, to to kind of solve or, or you know do a little bit of damage control, do a fix, the the Six Nations actually declared war on the Axis powers themselves, which which kind of made it I don't know somehow justify the fact that again Native people were enlisting at a pretty high rate. So. Even though our our people were serving in the U.S. military, or even on the Canadian side in the Canadian military, we were doing so because of our own declaration of war. Apparently, I got to tell you, um, we didn't ever sit at the table for the uh, for the 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 surrender agreements, the armistice treaty. So apparently, we're still at war with Germany and Japan. But uh, don't tell anybody because they might get pissed. But um, but and, and again. The other part that, that's kind of crazy about all this is this still doesn't accomplish what they want to accomplish. Not only did the 14th Amendment not make us U.S. citizens, this didn't either. Now, how do I know that? Because 10 years later, they would pass the Indian Reorganization Act, the IRA. And this was an attempt, once again, to make us all citizens. Now, how do I know that? Because if you um, are in a debate over trying to put land in the trust, what the, one of the criterion for uh, a Native peoples to, to, uh, to take land out, out of fee, you know, owned by the state or whatever else, deeded by the state, and put it into, uh, into trust to take it in his Native land, one of the criterion is that, well, you had to be under jurisdiction, uh, under the jurisdiction of the United States in 1934. Otherwise, you, you can't. Well, well wait a second. Aren't citizens under the jurisdiction of, 
of the United States? See, that's not even addressed in 1924. You know, Notice, there's nothing in there that says anything about us being under the jurisdiction of the United States or subjected to the jurisdiction of the United States. No, no language in there whatsoever. The only language in there is that, uh, again, um, provided that, that uh, grantings of such citizenship shall not in any manner impair or otherwise affect the right of any Indian to tribal or other property. I mean, that's that's the only you know uh qualification you know of of that act which to me is a big deal because i don't know how even if the united states claims that we're uh, that we're citizens that they can somehow tax us or they can do anything that affects our right on our territory now granted i know it might be a little bit of a different game when we don't live on native territory if we live in the city or 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 whatever else but when when we live on native lands how is, even if the United States claims, even if we claim that we're U.S. citizens by virtue of this act, that doesn't mean that they have the, uh, that they have jurisdiction over us because jurisdiction inherently takes something away. So it, it, again, it, it, even this act, which was specifically meant to declare that we were all citizens, doesn't do it. And, not only does it not do it, it was it was objected to by the State Indian Commission, and it was being condemned by the entire world. In fact, when you come out of World War II, there would be um, a new word that would be used. They don't use de- they, they stop using denationalization because that that starts to take on a little bit of a different meaning. So they come up with a new word, genocide. Now, genocide includes this notion of denationalization, the idea of creating the conditions that a people will cease to exist as those people. Well, that, that's genocide. That's denationalization. That's the idea of stripping away somebody's national character. Now, it's interesting that they would try to do this in 1924 because that's right smack in the middle, essentially, of the boarding school era. So you got to think that part of the rationale to doing this is the fact that they're still trying to justify what they're doing to Native people. The idea that they're, they're ripping our kids from families and putting them in these residential schools. I think it's important that people understand this. So when I, anytime I see somebody post something on Facebook, it's, well, uh, today's the anniversary of um, us becoming U.S. citizens. No, no. Or today's the anniversary of the, um, uh, the, them, pass, them granting us citizens. No, they didn't grant us citizenship. They declared it. They imposed it. They attempted to impose it. But we don't have to accept it. I mean, I, I did a, a show a year ago um, on, on a uh, on a show, an NPR show called The Takeaway with Tanzina Vega. And it starts out with me just saying, look, I'm not a U.S. citizen. Now, maybe people take offense to that. Maybe, there are some Native people who take offense to that. Well, why do I have to be a U.S. citizen? Why is that even necessary? I mean, there's certainly no benefit to it. I mean... And, and according to their own citizenship act, they still don't have the right to uh, to interfere to affect any any of my personal property or my property on, on native lands. Although they certainly have done that, which shows that it was fraud. That the whole reason for passing the Indian Citizenship Act was not to grant us something. It was not to award us with some privilege of being a U.S. citizen. It was to solve a problem that they had. Because they were continue to wrestle with this idea that there's a native, there's a people who live on shared lands or, or, or that share, we share boundaries anyway that are not a part of us. We 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 kind of addressed it with the black folk in 1860, uh, 1868, although not really because then you enter Jim Crow era for uh, for another century. The whole idea of racism, you know, which which every you know people of color uh, experienced in uh, in the United States, including and especially those of us who were here before before the United States. So, this idea of uh, of this declaration of citizenship, I mean, it doesn't even talk about you know a process. It just says, "Oh, you are." I mean, so when I have a conversation, even today. If I have a conversation with with a state legislator or a lawyer, 
or you know or uh, you know a federal legislator or, or or you know or whoever they can't even wrap their heads around the idea that I'm not a US citizen. Well, yeah, well you say but I'm not a US citizen. Well, yeah, we know, but no. Don't dismiss what I just told you. You can't impose US citizenship upon us. That's that's it was considered a war crime when you did it in 1924. It would be uh affirmed even further and and added more detail to it when the word would no longer be denationalization, when it would be genocide. To to try to force us into U.S. citizenship, which you're still doing, you're still trying to force us. Not only are you dismissive when we say we're not a U.S. citizen, but look at the whole passport issue. I mean, I went to the uh, in front of the, the the United Nations, you know, last August, and I tried to raise the issue because they were their the theme of their uh, World Indigenous Peoples Day was uh, was migration and movement of of indigenous peoples. I said, well, <laughs> well, we have a problem here. Because the United United States and Canada and other countries that may be willing to receive us won't let us provide our own our own travel documents. They're insisting before we can even get on a plane. I mean, they are prohibiting us from leaving North America on a flight. They're saying no, you can't. You can't unless you have a U.S. or Canadian passport. Wait, no, I've got my own documents. I've got a Haudenosaunee passport. I've got this. Oh no, that, that, that's they, they they call those fake documents. They call them counterfeit documents. So this is another example of them trying to force or impose their citizenship. They're saying, no, you have to have a U.S. travel document. But I'm not a U.S. citizen. Yeah, but you, you but you're native. I know, but you don't issue passports to people who aren't citizens unless you're a Samoan. The Isles of Samoa are the only people who are not U.S. citizens who can travel with the U.S. passport. They can be listed as um, as U.S. nationals. Well, I'm not even a U.S. national. But see, and you won't you won't accommodate. I mean, look, I would travel with it with the U.S. passport as long as I could say the passport clearly said I'm not a U.S. citizen. That I'm you know, Mohawk. I'm Gunyakahaga. I that I would do that. It, w- it wouldn't be my preference. My preference would be for us to travel on our own travel documents. But you can't impose your U.S. citizenship upon us. You couldn't do it in 1924, and you can't do it today. So I do have to correct people when they say, well, yeah, they passed the Indians. They made us citizens in 1924. No, they didn't. You may have made yourself a U.S. citizen. You may have accepted that declaration as valid. But not everybody did. There are many people who didn't and now i mean this you know you take a few generations later here i mean we're, we're coming up on 100 years of this thing and we have a whole lot of people who are conflicted over this so again 1868 you had the 14th amendment that tries to make everybody citizens didn't work in 1924 they tried to pass this indian citizenship act still didn't work 1934, they passed the Indian Reorganization Act, trying to make us all into little USA municipalities under their jurisdiction. Well, that didn't work. And they know it didn't work because they still are asking. They're asking us, well, were you under jurisdiction, uh, under our jurisdiction in 1934? Well, you know, I, I vote no. No, we, I, we, we weren't. My family wasn't. And you know what? Even if my family was, my family can't sell out my birthright. The whole idea of being born um, is that I get to choose. In our culture, it is prohibited. It is wrong. It is illegal, if you want to call it that, for somebody to strip somebody else's uh, character away. Even if it's dad or mom doing it to, uh, to to their son or daughter. We can compromise ourselves. We shouldn't, but we do. We can compromise ourselves, but we can't sell out future generations. We have this thing called seven generations, right? We, we talk about it all the time, but it gets taken, it, it gets twisted. Some people try to make it sound like, well, there's, you know, there's something spiritual or prophetic about the seventh generation. No, that's not what it means. I mean, maybe some cultures have that. 
So I'm not trying to, I mean, I, I know people have different ideas of this thing, but in, in Haudenosaunee, Rudenosaunee culture, the idea of this, this responsibility we have to the seven generations, it's not the seventh generation. It is really a responsibility we have to future generations. The next one, the next one after that, and including the generations that we won't ever live to see. The idea, the reason we use seven is because we might live to see five generations or even six. Maybe. We may not, our minds may not be very clear by the time we get to that age. But the likelihood is that we will not see the seventh generation. So we have a responsibility to those faces we will never see. Yeah, that and they're our families. But even if they weren't our families, they're they're still part of our they're still part of us. So we talk about our ancestors, but we we don't talk about the future generations. That's what that seven generation issue is all about. So, regardless of what anybody did in 1924, that wasn't seven, even seven generations ago, by the way. Regardless of what, how anybody accepted this or didn't accept, because first off, let me be clear. Most people were completely unaware. Most Native people didn't know what they were doing in Washington. They weren't a part of these consultations. So when Washington passes a law, even if they want to claim that it abrogated a treaty, nobody comes to us and says, hey, by the way, everything we agreed to uh, 10 years ago doesn't exist anymore. They don't come and tell us that. So when they passed this law in 1924, it's not like everybody came, people came knocking on the door you know of our of our homes to say oh by the way you're a, you're a US citizen now you're not a mohawk anymore you're not a seneca anymore you're not gunyagahaga or nunduwaga you are american here's your flag no no they didn't do that of course they didn't do that and like i said when they started trying to draft people in uh for for world war 2 that's the first time our people said, what you, wait, what is this? This You've never done this before. Now you're trying to say we have to enlist? And then they tried it again, you know, Korea and, and, or coming into Vietnam. In Vietnam, they started trying to draft people. We had more people who said, they're not drafting us. We had people who reject that. I don't know anybody, and, and, you know, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know anybody who was ever prosecuted, like Muhammad Ali was, for instance, who was native, who rejected the uh, the draft. Now, I, I, look, when I went through this on Memorial Day with some folks, somebody was, well, you know, my such and such, my uncle, my father, my grandfather um, didn't have a choice because he was drafted. Yeah, he had a choice. Mama Ali had a choice. He had more to lose than 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 most people. We hell, we we had places to hide out if somebody wanted to come try to take us and enlist us. We have to go to Canada, and frankly, if we did go to Canada, we probably got family there. So, no, we were in the best position to avoid the draft. So, and many people did. Not everybody did, but many people did. Hey, look, we're at the bottom of the hour, so we'll take a break and we'll come back. But I'm not, look, I'm not done with this thing yet. I think it's really important that people understand that in 1924, we weren't granted citizenship. It was an attempt for uh, by the United States to impose it on us, to subjugate us, to make us U.S. citizens. And that's not that's not legal. It's and it's not binding. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. We'll be right back. Money as you do. Rip. 
Thank our sponsors. Let's Talk Native is sponsored by Ross and Holly John and the RJE family of businesses and Eric White and ERW Enterprises. Now, a few people who eh, choose to remain nameless. Um, and, of course, we do encourage those who uh, who on occasion will drop a check in the mail or say, uh, give me a call and say, hey, stop by. We'd like to support what you're doing. Um, we don't get enough of those, and we sure, we sure could use it. We, uh, we're trying as we go to improve our product here um, we've got another video that'll come out over the next couple of days um, again on the doctrine of discovery talking about ruth bader ginsburg and and all of that um, and you'll see it, you know our production value is going up a little higher we're trying to use multiple cameras and we're trying to do some things uh, we've done some improvements here in studio um, but in order to do that we need your support so uh, again I, I appreciate those of you who do provide consistent re- uh, support to the show and um and those of you who uh, think about us from time to time think about us from time to time and uh and again we appreciate that as well hey i also want to thank those of you who who offer your comments and who engage in the conversations that i post on facebook or twitter or wherever else um you remember you can also comment on the youtube videos there is a section you can go down below the video and and offer your comments there as well um those of you who share the show, whether you're sharing the, the Facebook live stream like my uh, my wife does on so many group pages, um, or whether you share the a podcast or the or the YouTube video, uh, I appreciate all of it. And and I also appreciate those of you who allow us to share uh, the show on your uh, your group pages and your your, uh, your Facebook pages. So um, again, you know, let's keep the conversation going. You don't have to necessarily agree with everything that I say. I try to be factually accurate. I mean, I, I, but look, I, I am expressing opinions at the same time. But, but to be clear, on this issue, just because the United States declared that Native people were citizens doesn't mean that it's so. The United States says a lot of things, and they aren't necessarily true. In fact, they got a, they, they've got a guy who, uh, who, who's currently occupying the White House who barely can say a true word on, uh, on any, any given day. Um, look, you know, I, t- I talked a little bit about you know the doctrine or the uh, uh, declaration declaration of citizenship that they did in 1924, but I want to back up to the Everett Report again because this is an interesting thing that was done here. Because what, what New York State did was they they wanted to understand what was the obligation that was due to Native people, and so when this Everett Report was done in 1920 and was actually submitted to the New York State Legislature, the legislature wouldn't even take it; they wouldn't accept it. I mean, it, it just I mean, it landed like a lead balloon. Why? Because Edward Everett, who, who was the only commissioner willing to sign the report, by the way, made certain determinations based on the research that he did. And, and, and he considered where the United States was in the world at the time. He, he weighed out the, the blood and treasure that was spent by the United States um, in, on the European front in, in World War I. A battle that didn't really involve us, but the United States, you know, stepped up and, and many people enlisted, including Native people. But but what he talked about was for all of the blood and treasure that was sacrificed for this noble cause, you know, against the Germans and all that other stuff in in, um, in Europe. He says, how do we not address what what has transpired with Native people? And and he he acknowledged that this that that we the Six Nations in particular that we had valid claims to land. And that that New York State could not assert certain powers over over Native peoples that that we were truly an independent people, and that's why he took the position he took 
against the the Federal Indian Commission when they, at the mere suggestion that they would just try to impose U.S. citizenship up, upon us. He thought it was absurd. He compared it to, to somebody from another country being here that you wouldn't do that to. So how could you do it to somebody who predates their existence? He talked about how absurd the proposition was. But just like his, uh, the, the Everett report, his, the report from the New York State Indian Commission in 1920, it landed with a thud. And, um, and the, uh, the, the U.S., the federal government, did what they did anyway. So they, they passed this law. And, and again, it leaves so much out. I mean, it is, there's so very little detail there. I mean, it just basically says, we declare you're all citizens. And, and then goes on to say that, that nothing in this act shall, uh, shall affect or in any way impair um, the right of any Indian to, to tribal or other property. Well, we're constantly in a battle with, uh, with not only New York State, with the federal government over our property. Not just our property in terms of real estate, what we do in our lands, but, but everything from, you know, from our income to the work that we do to, to any of the commerce that we perform. This is all about our property being affected and, and being impaired by the state and the federal government. So once again, and this isn't even a treaty. This is, this is a piece of legislation. This is the United States passing a law and then they don't follow it. Now, I don't know. I can never find any, um, any, uh, proof or any event or legislation or treaty or, or any kind of agreement where the United States can categorically say we became theirs. Even this. Where the United States can say that we surrendered our sovereignty, that we transferred our national character and, and surrendered it to the United States. Because it doesn't exist. Even this doesn't do it. So my, I guess my, my message to, to folks out there who oftentimes it's so easy to just repeat information the way it's dished out to you. Oh, yeah, 1924, we all became citizens. No, we didn't. We didn't all become citizens. Many of us still reject it to this day. But many people rejected it then. I mean, you have to understand what the United States was, was trying to pull off in 1924. And... It was met with resistance, not just by the six nations, but by, by people all over the country. Now, look, there were some people who wanted to become U.S. citizens. In fact, there were already Native people who had become U.S. citizens. It wasn't like it was totally prohibited. There are people who served in the military. There were other people who did various things that, you know, in anticipation of being awarded U.S. citizenship, they did, yeah, they did some of those things. But the vast majority of Native people in 1924... They weren't applying for citizenship. They weren't, they weren't trying to be Americans. They were Diné. They were, you know, Ojibwe. They were Anishinaabe. They were Lakota. They were, you know, uh, Onundawaga. They were, uh, Ganyagaaga. Onyotaaga. They were, they were all these people with very distinct character. They were Onwenwe. They were original people. They didn't need to be stamped by people who came you know, only a, a couple, in this case, you know, barely a couple hundred years before. I mean, so the idea that, that the United States could just impose its citizenship upon people, and the worst part about it is, is how many of our people just, just accept it. I mean, even, even getting back to the whole, um, uh, passport issue. I know so many native people say, well, you know, I want to travel, so I'll just get a U.S. passport. You've got to claim U.S. citizenship to get that. It's right there on the document. Hell, you, for even, for you to go down to the Seneca Nation and get an enhanced tribal card, even an enhanced tribal card. What's an enhanced tribal card, you say? Well, it is a card that is a federal ID. Oh, oh it's not a Seneca ID. Seneca's pay for it, and they issue it, but it's a federal ID that says Seneca Nation on the top. Well, why is it a federal ID? Because they're the ones who produce their criteria. Five, five, um, requirements on a uh, that the nations had to put together for this um enhanced tribal card one is that you have to prove your your citizenship either canada or the united states maybe mexico too i don't i don't know uh, how they deal with it down there 
uh, on the Texas border and, so, and such. But but here, you can you can if you can provide your Canadian citizenship, you can still get an enhanced tribal card from um, um, you know on, on this side uh, uh, through the you know the, approved by the Western Hemisphere Travel Initiative, you know, the, in the Department of Homeland Security. But you have to prove. I mean, when you look at the Seneca documents that were, you know, the Seneca Nations documents for an enhanced driver card, the first requirement is um, a proof of citizenship. So it's not that you're a Seneca citizen. You've got to be an American citizen or a Canadian, or a U.S. citizen or a Canadian citizen. That's the first requirement. The second one is the, the, the picture that's on the ID has to be shot in such a way that they can pull data points off your face so they can sub- submit and and it has to be compatible with the the federal government's facial recognition technology, so you could be put in their system. The third thing is there has to be a um, a renewal date, an expiration date on the on the ID. That way, eh, in case your face changes a little bit, we got to make sure that we get a we get a, a current picture. The the fourth requirement. They wanted a a scannable strip. You know, uh, whether it's a barcode or you know, or, or, or again, one of those one of those readable strips on the card. Now, don't know what information pulls up on that strip. Seneca Nation wasn't providing that. This is the federal government doing that. And they wanted an RFID chip. Well, now, why would you want an RFID chip? Well, the RFID chip enables them to read the the card without you ever giving it to them. For all intents and purposes, they could read it in your wallet. Oh, they claim that you know, we'll, we'll give you a sleeve. You can put it in a sleeve. And nobody can read it unless you take it out of sleeve. Okay, if you believe that, all right, that maybe. But at the end of the day, they wanted two ways to to read the card. Those are two of the requirements. They wanted an expiration date so you, so your your picture could stay current. They wanted your photograph to be compatible with federal recognition, te- uh, U.S. federal government re- uh, facial recognition technology. And first and foremost, they wanted um, proof of U.S. citizenship or Canadian citizenship. Now, and and here's what they did. So when you get that Seneca Nation enhanced tribal card, they put a flag on it. I mean, literally, in the corner. They're either going to put an American flag or a Canadian flag because you can't be a Seneca citizen. You have to be a Canadian citizen or a U.S. citizen to get, an, to get a Seneca Nation enhanced tribal card. This is more of this forced denationalization. Just like 1924. Just like this Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. And we become complicit. You know, look, the Seneca Nation never imposed these these ideas on people. In fact, it, it got you know, it got done during the, the Porter administration. I think only about a hundred people in the entire Seneca Nation actually ever got these things. It's been a complete debacle. You know, just a, a waste of money. They spent millions doing it. And and I think the, the only people who really got them were, were probably Seneca Nation employees because they were encouraged to do it, I guess. But but again, here's the problem. The problem is that that you uh, uh, you have to prove you're, you're a U.S. citizen or a Canadian citizen. Now, back on the citizenship issue, we also have this other debate that comes up from time to time, which has to do with the, with the registration for the draft. Now, I'm one of those guys who was born just before the new requirement came out to register for the uh, for the draft the, the current one that's on the books today i'm born at the in at the end of december in 1959 if i was born 10 days later 11 days later um i would have been according to their laws required to register for the draft of course i wouldn't have done it many most native people i would say i actually i don't even know many native people don't don't register for the draft now how do we interpret that I mean, you know, so do we take the position that it's simply not required of us, that we're exempt because we're not U.S. citizens, because you can't draft Native people? We can't, we can't get that even clarified. You know, the Seneca Nation doesn't even come out with a strong position. I mean, Seneca Nation should issue uh, um, some directive, right, to, to boys when they turn 18. Our boys turn 18. Native boys in the local schools and the schools are telling them they have to do this stuff there's nobody guiding them you know hopefully parents but most parents are oblivious to this i mean if you're older than if you're my age or older you didn't even go through this thing you know you don't even know what this is right but if you're younger than me maybe you 
you registered for the draft. Maybe it didn't. But are you directing your kids to do it? See, this is this is you know one of these huge question marks. And and it ties directly to this so-called declaration in 1924 that said we were citizens. Well, how could imposing a draft registration not be considered um impairing us on our on our our, our property or, or or our rights? I mean, it seems like freedom is is a right, right? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy that when they passed this thing in 1924 and they put this caveat on here that you know that such citizens shall not in any manner impair or otherwise affect the right of any Indian to tribal or, or other property. I mean, and yet we're in a constant battle over over just our income. Like I said, how crazy it is it. That if you get elected on count, on, onto the council in Seneca Nation, and, and I'm sure that's the same way in Aquasasne or, uh, and those guys that, who are the so-called traditionals in, uh, in Onondaga, does Sid Hill pay ta- a federal income tax? I don't know. I know the IRS paid them a visit. I know the IRS go, uh, has, has gone to Tonawanda and paid them visits. And then we, we don't hear anything. So, so what's the position? What's the position of the Santa Nation? What's the position of the Tonawanders, the Tuscaroras, and the Onondagas? We won't even sit in the same room and talk about it. Why? Maybe because we're all embarrassed. But how is it that the federal government can take away 25 to 30% of our income? I mean, that's money that we, for our families, that we're supposed to support our families with. What possible scenario could have been created that allows the federal government, especially when they say it, even in their citizenship act, that nothing in uh, in this declaration, nothing in this in, uh, in uh, granting the citizenship, <laughs> shall impair us from our property. Well, I, it seems to me, income from our uh, from our wages from from the sale sale of our labor is personal property, or and and, and in some cases even tribal property. If you if you work for the Sangha Nation. How does the federal government place itself in between the service that you provide to your people, to the Seneca Nation, and to the people of Seneca uh, of the Seneca Nation, and the payment that you receive for that service? How does the federal government get in there? Because I can't find any place, not in this law, ninety five ninety fifth anniversary of this law, not in this law or any law, and yet. If you talk to a lawyer about trying to fight some sort of income tax um, lien, lawyers say, oh, no, you, you can't win. You can't win. Well, this gets back to the conversation I had with Peter DeRico on my show in New York. And he says, you know, sometimes you have to fight even if you're going to lose. Because it's only through fighting that you can win. If you don't fight, then you're already lost. I mean, it took a while for you know uh, for the civil uh, the, the um uh, uh civil rights act to get passed it took a while before segregation you know was forced to be uh, to, to have ended i mean we're still looking at the fight that that happens uh you know because of racial discrimination and look there's there there are international conventions there are there's there's us law there's state law all kinds of laws that are supposed to you know, combat racism. But it's still there. You still have black people earning far less money than white people. You have black people who are are employed at a much lower rate than white people are. And of course, we're right there with black folks. Now, and and even, even among white people, you know, just from a gender standpoint, women women can't make as much money as men can. How is that? How is that legal? See, this is these are the are the the things that you have to fight for, even if you're not going to win it immediately. I mean, because uh, you know, I, I talk about it all the time. Sometimes there's bad rulings that come down, and those bad rulings are the things that you got to keep poking a pin at, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg citing the doctrine of Christian discovery in, in an Oneida case. A terrible ruling. A terrible ruling on on two, three, maybe even four fronts. 
but a ruling nonetheless. But if we don't point to it, that's why you know it's one of the reasons that that I applaud that that, that the um, the state of Washington versus Cougar Den, which was a, a company, um, a fuel delivery company in Yakima territory, that the the Yakima Nation. Uh, provided a brief in that in that case. They, they weren't the defendant. They provided it on behalf of uh, this company, their, uh, a company that uh, uh, that operated on their territory, and they went all, they went all in with this thing. They went after the doctrine of Christian discovery. They went after all of it. They're, they had two major parts of their of the brief they submitted. The court never even addressed the whole doctrine of discovery issue, but they acknowledged the the treaty argument that the. Um, uh, the Yakima had made, and then they ruled in favor of uh, of Cougar Dead. Barely five four decision. Neil Gorsuch, Trump appointee, is the one who was the swing vote with the with the liberals. We talked about this a couple of shows ago. But if you don't fight this stuff, you'll never win it. Sometimes you got to fight, and you know, and sometimes that fight is tough. I mean, the problem is we've lost our fight. We haven't lost the fight. We lost our fight. Not a whole lot of people are willing to sacrifice. I mean, they'll go to jail for drinking. They'll go to jail for beating up their wife. But will they go to jail to stand up uh, when they stand up to the federal government or the state government? Look, it's it's not you know not something that you do voluntarily. But sometimes you got to fight this stuff. That's the only only way we can win is by putting up a fight. And one of the things to fight is is this idea that they can impose their citizenship upon us. So next year when this rolls around, I, man, I would love to see more people say it's the 96th anniversary of them passing a law where they tried to make us U.S. citizens. Man, I would love to see that posted. I, you know, I offer my commentary um on on pretty much every every post that I saw about the um, the anniversary of the Indian Citizenship Act, and on every one of those posts that I offer my commentary on, I it, it was received well. People say, "Oh man, I'm glad you said that." Well, again, uh, you know, I say in my opening that uh, we not only you know have conversations, but we start conversations, and but the whole idea is for you to continue the conversation. So next year, and throughout the year, maybe we have to rethink this whole idea of who we are. Look, we're going to see it. I mean, as election, you know, 2020 election rolls through, and um, look, they're going to do a census and uh, coming up here soon. Are, are we afraid to say that we're not citizens of the United States? I mean, are we scared of that? I mean... If there's no place for us on their form, I mean, because look, if they say, are you a U.S. citizenship, you know, are you a U.S. citizen? If not, what's your, you know, I don't know, your immigration number or status or whatever else. No, neither one of those apply. They're never going to change those forms until we make them change those forms. So we either don't fill out the forms or we lie and we say that we're something that we're not when they ask us. And then in private, we say, oh, yeah, I just put that down. Well, you know, sorry, you kind of can't have it both ways. You've got to take a stand. You know, and look, it's it's high time for the Seneca Nation and, and other, you know, other nations to to step up on the passport issue, step up on the birth certificate issue, step up on the on the travel document issue in general. Not an enhanced tribal card you know, compliant with the Department of Homeland Security of the United States? No, not that. But if we don't go to the United Nations and raise hell every year that they have this permanent forum on indigenous issues about the failure of all of those nations that come there every year, throughout the year, to recognize that we have a right to produce our own travel documents. Why? Because you said so. The United Nations said it over and over and over again. Declaration of Human Rights, uh, Convention Against Racism, um, you know, Convention Against Genocide, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. You said it over and over and over again throughout the uh, your entire existence. But when it comes down to where the rubber meets the road, it gets real weak. The UN gets real weak in the knees. Why? Because we're not giving them any strength either. 
We need to assert ourselves. We need to assert ourselves home. We need to assert ourselves in in the state capitals, in the national capitals, and at the United Nations. It is high time that Native people asserted their right to be Native people. Not Native Americans or American Indians or of Indian descent. No. <laughs> As Ungwe as the people, as the people who predated Europeans coming to our shores, establishing a country on our lands, imposing their will on our lands, on Hawaii, on Puerto Rico, on uh, in the Philippines, in, in South America, in Alaska, the Caribbean in general. The United States has military presence in 70 countries around the world. If anybody even began to have that kind of military presence, the United States would cry foul. Look, we're not fighting for global domination. We're just fighting for a, for our own distinction and autonomy. A free and independent existence. Doesn't sound very threatening. But that's where we need to... Um, place ourselves we can't talk about decolonization and and what celebrate the 95th anniversary of the Indian Citizenship Act and then again nobody was really celebrating it but I, but it got posted a few times and I had to provide some some language to that that's why I wanted to do the show today it is important that we assert our distinction and our autonomy I mean uh, sovereignty is, is a is a kind of a, a crazy word and it, and it's not one of our things but in our language we, we say we have the power we have the right to carry ourselves the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924 was an attempt to strip that right away and say no you are not the distinct people that you've been they tried to say in 1924 we cease to be those people Oh, they try to put a little caveat and they say, "Oh, you can you can retain some some things, but your citizenship, you're Americans now. You're a United States citizen. No, no, I'm not, not, not. That's not us. So anyway, that's my show on this issue, and we'll talk about it more as we go forward. Uh, again, I want you to look um, look for our video that'll be coming out over the next couple of days. Um, it's a uh, I, I think you'll be pleased with it. And uh, I appreciate you guys offering comments and, and sharing the video. Make sure It's not going to be a long one, so um, you're not going to invest a tremendous amount of time. But take a look at it, pass it around, and, uh, and get some feedback on it. Uh, I am going to New York this week. So, um, in fact, I've got Lance Gums joining me uh, from Shinnecock on my show in New York on WBAI. You can listen to us uh, Thursday at 4 p.m. from 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, you can listen to us via the uh, the WBI website, which is uh, www.wbi.org, or, just like with this show, we'll Facebook live stream it. So you can catch us on Facebook Live, and then we'll put the show up on a podcast and a YouTube video afterwards. So, uh, so look for us uh, Thursday as well, um, and then we'll see you on Saturday as well. Again, this is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. See you then. Thank you.